Now, if you'll take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Genesis, and we're looking at Genesis 26 tonight. Uh, Genesis 26, we've been studying the book of Genesis for some time now since, uh, um, well, we've been in Matthew on Sunday mornings for a little over a year. Uh, We've been in Genesis not quite that long, but... uh, Uh, We're going through chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis, and we're coming to uh, chapter 26, and we want to look tonight at uh, a portion of Scripture talking about in your father's footsteps. If you're a parent tonight, uh, or, or at some time or another, you probably watched your child do something or say something or react to a situation Uh, and they didn't react like you really wanted them to react. They acted poorly. And uh, maybe you cringed uh, because you realized you were looking at your child and you thought, that looks like what I was doing when I was their age. You think, I'm looking looking in the mirror. Uh, And you saw some of your less honorable traits being played back to you in your children. Or maybe you said something or you did something or you reacted in a particular way and they, uh, they shrieked with realization uh, that you have become your parents. Um, just right before I was to get married to my lovely wife, my mother-in-law-to-be said, well, take a good look at me now. In 40 years, this is what you'll have. And uh, sometimes our kids, they do things, and they, especially when they get older and they get their own families, and they, they realize, hey, I'm becoming my parent. I'm doing things just like my mom or my dad did. The very things uh, you thought you would never do or say, uh, you're doing and saying now, like it or not. We tend to follow some of the footprints of the most influential people in our lives, and that is our parents. Well, here in our text tonight, we see some snapshots from the life of Isaac. As we look at this second patriarch of the faith, we see several similarities to his father, Abraham. Some are good and some aren't so good. Notice, first of all, with me, just a couple of areas here tonight, but the first of all, the footsteps that led to trouble. The footsteps that led to trouble. Um, First of all, we find here in chapter 26, uh, beginning uh, with this uh, chapter here, in verse 1, it says, And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, into uh, Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee, and will bless thee, for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now here he's rehearsing the 
covenant that he had made with Abraham and that he uh, uh, was uh, also making it unto uh, Isaac as well. And he said, Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. And in verse 6, Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place then asked him of his wife. Okay, so here we have his first following of the footsteps. He headed to Egypt. He headed to Egypt. Our text tells us that in the day of Isaac, there was a famine very similar to the famine in the days of his father Abraham. And Abraham took off for Egypt instead of trusting God. His first instinct was to run from trouble. You say, that's my first instinct. I don't want trouble. I want to stay as far away from trouble as I possibly can. Who wants, to live? Who wants trouble? And it appears that that was the first instinct of his son Isaac as well. We read that God tells Isaac not to go to Egypt, but instead to stay in Gerar. Well, like it or not, our children learn to deal with problems the same way we do. Sometimes when we have problems, we like to, first of all, blame others. Say, well, it's not my fault. I got this. It's so-and-so's fault, or it's something else. It's a situation. It's, it's, the, it's the economy, or it's this or that. It's, we want to blame some, someone or something. And then we make excuses. Or we might even run away from it. Or we might whine and complain. Or we could patiently trust in God. Which one of those things do we do when problems come into our lives? Blame others? Make excuses? Run away? Whine? Complain? Or do we patiently trust God? And so we find here in verse 7, in following his father's footsteps, he lied about his wife. Here's the second scene of, at, uh, at a, in our glimpse of the life of Isaac that's one very quite familiar to us because it's already happened in the life of Abraham as we've already studied. It says in verse 7, The men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, She is my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebekah because she was fair to look upon. Same situation that Abraham had looked at or had been in, and Isaac gets into trouble because he handles it like his father did. Now Isaac was living in Gerar, as God told him. Apparently he was aware that the men of the community thought that his wife was attractive, was desirable. And when they asked him who she was, he used the same lie that his father had used. She is my sister. Now, unlike in the case of Sarah, Rebekah had never been taken into anyone's harem. God makes sure that doesn't happen. And now here we find that Abimelech is looking out his window one day, as we would read down uh, further on here, and he spies Isaac sporting with, um, with Rebekah. It says in verse 8, It came to pass when he had been there a long time, and Abimelech the king of Philistines looked out at at a window, and saw, behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Now, 
Some have thought that, that he spied them kissing. That could have been. I don't know if that's exactly what was happening there. It could have been that he was being intimate with her, and surely his first thought was, ooh, gross, if that's his sister. Yuck. But then he realized, you know, that wasn't Isaac's sister. Isaac was caught in a lie. His reputation was stained. His character was called into question. Do you realize that it's easier to sin if someone opens the door for us? It's easier to do what is wrong if we have seen others do it. It's easier to pick up a bad character trait if we have had it modeled for us. Now, I don't think every case is so blatant and so obvious, but you know, we do influence our children in many ways. We are setting up our children on a course of giving them an example. We give them examples by our spending habits, by the way we resolve conflicts, by the values we order our lives. Not always the same as the values we profess. You know, we might say that we value something, but in our reality, we may not be living those values. Uh, we uh, set our children on a course, give them example in our worship habits, by our devotional life or lack thereof, by the way we approach our work. Do we approach work with diligence or resistance? <coughs> when we go to work in the morning, do we gripe and complain about having to go to work? about the people we work with, about the boss who's over us. By the way, we handle hard times. You know, do we, when we get into a trial or a hard time, do we complain or do we do it with trust? We give our children an example by the way we handle those who oppose us. You know, the choices we make not only have immediate consequences, but there are the long-term consequences as well. People are watching us, especially our children and our grandchildren. The patterns of our lives will influence, influence those we love positively or negatively. Now, if you, uh, you're like me, you perhaps feel a sense of remorse at this point. You say, well, I really haven't been a very good example. I've really messed up a good number of times in my life. We know that we've made some serious mistakes, perhaps, in our lives, and we wonder, if there, is there anything we can do to help those who are following us walk the same, uh, who are walking the same path? Can we help them? Well, let me make some suggestions. First of all, don't justify or excuse. Don't justify or excuse your mistakes or your bad habits. Don't play the role of the victim. Instead, take responsibility for the choices you've made. Admit that you've been foolish. Confess that you've sinned. And if your children have seen you do these things, you need to confess it to them too. Don't justify it or excuse it. Admit it. Secondly, be honest with the cost of your mistakes. Be honest. Be honest about the heartache and the loss and the suffering and the, 
and help others to see the real and costly consequences of your actions. You ever listen to some people as they give their testimony? They talk about the horrible way they lived before they met Christ. But they tell you it in such a way that it kind of glamorizes it. I'm always kind of weary about those testimonies of people who got saved out of a life of sin and they talk about all the things that they've been do- they had been doing and, and uh, it kind of glamorizes it. I've even heard people say, wow, I wish I had a testimony like that. Listen. Why? Why would you for a minute wish that you had sinned more than you did? Beware of the danger of glamorizing the sinfulness of the so-called good old days. Because if you really come down to it, they weren't so good, were they? How much better it would be to say to a child, No, I didn't go to church when you were little but I should have. I have wasted all these opportunities to enjoy God's blessings and I have spent years looking for something that was right in front of me the whole time. Be honest about your mistakes and the consequences and the cost of them. Thirdly, point people to a better way. Show your children and your friends and those around you that the wisdom uh, uh, that... uh, the wisdom of God's way. Show them a better alternative. Don't just show them with the words that you speak, but show them with your life. And then fourthly, pray, pray, and pray. Pray that God would shield those who follow your footsteps the same way God shielded Isaac. Pray that God would awaken their hearts and make them sensitive to His Spirit. Now I know you. some of you are praying. I've heard some of you pray for your children and your grandchildren. Don't quit praying. Don't give up. Keep praying. The footsteps that we uh, often have taken that led us to trouble and we've been a bad example but notice as we go on here there's the footsteps that are worth following i think it's important for us to see isaac did learn some things from his father most of all isaac learned about faith from his father i wonder how many children these days can say that they learned their faith from their father And I want us to notice some positive things said about Isaac in this chapter. As we move down to verse 12 and 13, it says, Isaac sowed in the land and received in the same year an hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him, and the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. Notice, first of all, his fortune grew. His fortune grew. Isaac continued working faithfully, and the blessing came. One of the things I like about Isaac is that he seemed to be just kind of an ordinary guy. (coughs) Isaac is kind of what we call a blue-collar 
patriarch. We don't read a lot about him because he didn't do much that was real flashy. For the most part, Isaac simply did his job. He faithfully served God in an ordinary task of life. Uh, was he a perfect man? No, we've seen here he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes, but he was a man who served God faithfully. And God took an ordinary man and used him to build his kingdom. I read about a foreman on the railroad who was out on a hot day working with his crew on the side of the track and train pulled up and from the custom, uh, uh, custom-made car at the back of the train, the owner of the railroad called out to the foreman. And then they began to visit like friends for about an hour. And when the foreman returned to his men, he wanted, they wanted to know how it was that he knew the president of the railroad and was so friendly with him. Well, the foreman told them how they had started on the railroad the same day. They started working for that railroad for the same day. And the men asked obvious question. <coughs> Excuse me. How is it that you're out here in the heat working as a foreman and he's riding around as the president of the company? The man's answer was very telling. He said, when we both started the day I was working, uh, we... But the day that I was working, I was working for $1.35 an hour. He was working for the railroad. You understand what he's saying? I was working for a paycheck. He was working for the company. And here's a good question for us. Who are we working for? Are we working for a paycheck or do we see the bigger picture are we logging time or are we serving the Lord? Those who work for material things can only hope for material things. Those who work for the Lord will enjoy the blessing of the world the world can never produce. By the way, $1.35 at one time was a good wage. I remember those days. Some of you young people say, wow, just $1.35? Yeah, but hamburgers were only 15 cents, or maybe a dime, or 10 for a dollar, whatever. Well, who are we working for? Are we working for the paycheck, or are we working to serve the Lord? <clears throat> we find here, his fortune grew. Notice also, he endured hardship. He endured hardship. You know, receiving God's blessing and having an easy life are not the same thing. There's no guarantee that doing right will be the popular thing to do. Isaac grew in his wealth, but he became a target for those who threatened, uh, were threatened by him. Notice verse 14. It says, And he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and a great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, and the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. <clears throat> We're told that the men filled the wells his father had dug, and if you didn't have water, then you couldn't take care of your livestock. Water was important. They were trying to push Isaac out. They were 
he was reopening the wells, but the men of Gerar claimed them as their own, and uh, it was underhanded, it was wrong. And it takes a lot of work to dig a well, especially in those days. They didn't have Ed's equipment for digging. They didn't probably even have very good shovels. I suspect the process was very difficult. Some would say, you know, Isaac, you're a wimp. He should have, he should have just flexed his muscles and fought back. Now, I don't think Isaac was weak. I think he was faithful. He trusted God to make a place for him. He endured. He kept doing what was right. And in the end, the king of Gerar came to him and asked him for a treaty of peace. Isaac's character and godliness was reaffirmed by the way he handled this situation. He turned a bad first impression around, by the way, and he, by the way he handled this situation. The same can be true with us. There's nothing that reveals character like difficulty. Now, it mentions here the wells, and we need to pause here and just focus on these wells for a moment. I believe these wells can teach us some things about how to handle life when difficulty comes our way. It tells us here that Isaac called the wells the same name as his father called them. Notice verse 18. It says, And Isaac digged again the wells of water which had been digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there is a well of springing water. I want you to notice there are four wells, and these four wells can, I believe, teach us a lesson or two. Notice, first of all, the well at Esek. The well at Esek was a well of strife and contention. A well of strife and contention. Verse 20. And the herdsmen, herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And he called the name of the well Esek, because they strove with him. This well obtained its name from the strife between the herdsmen of Gerar and Isaac's herdsmen. Strife and contention can drain us emotionally till we have nothing left in us. Strife strangles our spirit. It steals our peacefulness. And the events at this well and the next will reveal several things about Isaac's character. Isaac demonstrated initiative and resourcefulness in digging this well. You know how disappointing it must have been when the Philistines claimed the well that Isaac had dug. Isaac moved on, and he demonstrates flexibility in his life. He was flexible because I believe he realized that petty temporal things are not worth the price of strife. How often do we struggle and have strife in our life with others over petty little things that don't amount to anything. They're just, uh, you know, they're just little things, material things that perhaps uh, wouldn't make a bit of difference if we didn't have them or if, if they got broken or if they, they, we got lost. And yet we strive and have contention over these little petty things. And Isaac was able to cope with the greed of others and the rejection and the argumentation and the resistance because he knew where his true source of strength came from. 
It comes from the Lord. The well at Esek is a well of strife and contention. Notice the next well, the well at Sitna. The well of Sitna is a well of skirmish and Satan. Verse 21 says, And they digged another well and strove for that also. And he called the name of it Sitna. Isaac left the well at Esek, dug a well at Sitna, also a place of skirmish and strife. And the name Sitna is also uh, uh, full of hidden treasures in its meaning. This word Sitna, this name, is first mentioned, is the first mention of Satan, actually, in the Aramaic language. The word Satana means adversary, accusation, enmity, or hatred. The term Satan is derived from the Aramaic root word, Sata, meaning to, dis, to mislead or to go astray, to slide, to miss the mark, to lie in wait. And we could say that the well at Sitna is the well of the battle or temptation that reminds us of the battle and temptations we face every day in our own lives. Satan desires to lead us astray, to get us sidetracked. He's our adversary. He lies in wait to attack and to destroy our lives. He's like a roaring lion roaming the earth, seeking whom he may devour. He desires that we sin. And sin means we miss the mark. It's a sinful living getting the best of us. I wonder this evening, are we missing the mark of God? Are we getting sidetracked or uh, uh, set aside by petty little distractions? If so, we need to confess our disobedience to the Lord, get into the Word of God each day, pour our heart to the Lord in prayer. The well at Sitna. We come to the third well, it's the well at Rehoboth. It's the well of peace and serenity. Peace and serenity. Verse 22, And he removed from thence, digged another well, and for that they strove not, and he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Here Isaac demonstrates meekness and uh, tolerance and determination and steadfastness. He had done that at Sitna. God had allowed trials to come into his life, and he allows trials to come into our life as well. Why does he do that? Why does he allow trials in our lives? To see what we're made of. Isaac seems to be coming through with flying colors. He just wouldn't quit. He had a high threshold of endurance. He learned the secret of serenity by yielding his life and his rights to the, to the Lord. You see, he realized that God was in control. God would take care of him. And God did meet his needs. He dug a well at Rehoboth and wasn't bothered anymore by his enemies. The word Rehoboth means broad, wide, or room, enlargement, space. It's a place of liberty for Isaac. And he had freedom here where he had nowhere else. Notice the verse says there, for now the Lord hath made room for us. You know, when we yield ourselves and our rights to the Lord, He gives us a freedom and a joy in our life. And by yielding rights 
such as even the right of privacy or personal possessions or people in our life or personal opinions or position or popularity. We're able to conquer this formidable enemy, that enemy uh, which is our own selfish desires and pride. We're so concerned about our rights and our desires and our way we get consumed with worry and we lose our peace and our joy. Isn't that true? People who are concerned about, I have my rights. Are they peaceful people? Not really. I want my way. Are they peaceful people? No. These kind of things will consume us and will cause us to lose our peace and our joy. Then there's the well at Beersheba. The well at Beersheba is a well of surplus and solemn words. Surplus and solemn words. Notice verse 23. It says, And he went up from thence to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared unto him the same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and will bless thee, and will multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. Move down to verse 26, and it says, And Abimelech went to him from Gerar and Ahuzda, Seth, from his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me? To ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and have sent me away from you. And he said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. And we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, and that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Thou art now blessed of the Lord. And he made them a feast, and they did drink, and, or eat and drink, and they rose up betimes in the, in the morning, and swear one to another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well that they had digged, and he said unto them, We have found water, and he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. After God had blessed Isaac and had provided for him at Rehoboth, Isaac departs to Beersheba, where fellowship with the Lord is restored. And God appears to him and promises to bless him. And he not only builds or digs the well there, but he builds an altar. And he calls upon the Lord. He digs another well at this location. And he's visited here by Abimelech and from Gerar. And uh, they, of course, were accompanied by his friends and the king discerns that God is with Isaac and he's blessing them, him. He desires a peace treaty with him. And he, he lies, though, when he says he did nothing but good for Isaac. Did you catch that? It didn't, uh, really, wasn't really very honest there because they had caused them a lot of problems. But he lies and said uh, he did nothing but good for him. Well, Isaac holds his peace. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't call him on it, but in a spirit of meekness and forgiveness, he agrees to the covenant and they depart in peace. And Isaac consistently returns good for evil. A well is dug and its name is Sheba, 
meaning plenty or satisfied, filled, an oath. Isaac's cup was running over with the blessing of God. God was Isaac's satisfier. I wonder tonight, are you drinking from the well at Beersheba? Have you dedicated and committed your life to Jesus Christ? You know, this is the secret of blessing, of satisfaction, of joy and success in the Christian life. Beersheba was a place of fellowship with the Lord. I wonder, are you committed to walking with God day by day, reading His Word, praying and witnessing and yielding your life to the Holy Spirit? Because that's the place where God wants you to be. And so Isaac's fortune grew. He endured hardship. And then, notice, he stayed in the land that God gave him. He stayed in the land that God gave him. Go back to verse 25. It says, And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants digged a well. We read the phrase there, pitched his tent there. When Isaac found the place where God wanted him to be, he stayed there. Isaac was probably about 60 uh, when Esau and Jacob were born. And now back in Beersheba, Esau, Esau had gotten married at the age of 40. And so Isaac's absence from the land could not have been more than 40 years. Uh, we've realized that he died at, probably at the age of 180, which means he stayed in the land for 80 years. Now this doesn't sound like a big deal, but think about that. Think about the way you and I often are. We find blessing from God and then we run back to the world. We find the delight and peace, <coughs> the delight and peace of prayer, and then we forget prayer until the next crisis. You know, we get our prayer answered and we say, "Okay, I can make it on my own now, Lord. I don't need you." We see the enlightenment that the Bible gives us for living. But then we forget the Word of God and we turn back to our own tactics and devices. We are so inconsistent and we would do well to stay in the place of blessing like Isaac did. So, should we learn from these verses? I think we certainly should. Notice three things in closing tonight, what we should learn. First of all, we are warned. We are warned. We're warned that we... Uh, what we do not only affects our lives, but it affects the lives of those around us. Our faithfulness will spur on the faithfulness of others. Our failures make a path to sin that others may follow. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of footprints am I leaving for those who come after me? What kind of an example am I leaving for my children, and my co-workers, or other believers? We're warned here in this chapter. Secondly, we're instructed. We're instructed by Isaac's example. How do we handle a difficult circumstance? Do we run away or do we trust faithfully? How do we handle opposition? Isaac certainly faced opposition, and you and I will certainly face opposition in our lives. Do we adopt the tactics of our opponents or do we just continue to do what's right? We're going to work for the Lord and for Him alone. And if we do so faithfully, God will see us through. And then, lastly, we should be encouraged here. Isaac made mistakes, but these mistakes did not disqualify him 
for God's blessing <coughs> for, or grace. Nowhere in the Scripture do we read that Isaac was disqualified from God's blessing because of the mistakes he made in the past. You know, often in the Scriptures we read about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Isaac holds a place of prominence in spite of his mistakes. I would suspect that there may be some here tonight who feel the mistakes they've made are so bad that God will never forgive them or restore them. But the Bible's filled with stories of how God has taken people who failed and God has turned their lives around. Because God is in that business, the business of restoring broken lives. His forgiveness and restoration will not erase all the consequences, but He will help us move in a different direction. Maybe today is the day we need to stop making excuses and start addressing the problem. And the problem is not your parents. The problem is not your children. It is not your environment. The problem is not your income level. The problem is not even your circumstances. The problem is the heart. There's only one who can change the heart, and that's, His name is Jesus. Most of us are not going to be like Abraham or Joseph or Moses or David or Peter or Paul. Most of us will never be used in the great way that these men were used. Most of us will be more kind of like Isaac. Remember? Just kind of ordinary guy. A simple guy. And I pray that, like Isaac, we will choose to be ordinary folks who serve an extraordinary God. And as a result, we, may we enjoy the mercy and the grace and the peace that comes as we are faithful to follow his footsteps. We're warned, we're, instruction, we're instructed, but we're also encouraged. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the example that you've given to us here in the book of Genesis, Genesis 26. Yes, Isaac made mistakes, and we've made our share of mistakes. And Lord, we don't want our children and our grandchildren to make the same mistakes that we've made. We want them to honor you and glorify your name and to follow you. But Lord, the reality of it is, most often they'll follow you because we follow you. And we pray, Lord, we will be a good examples to our children and grandchildren. Help us to to remember that uh, there's no excuse for what we did was wrong. Help us to be honest, to admit our mistakes, and to realize that uh, you are our forgiving God. You love us. Help us to point our children and others to a better way. And help us to be faithful to pray. Continually pray that God's will would be done in our lives as well as those that we influence. Lord, help us to follow these footsteps that are worth following. Help us tonight as we've been warned and we've been instructed. Help us also to be encouraged. 
We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.